there's an important evolution going on in healthcare with respect to reducing healthcare disparities and creating equity. Often as part of a growing focus on population health, many leaders are turning their attention to actions hospitals and health systems can take to reduce disparities beyond the clinic walls. Now, socioeconomic issues play a huge role, and that means health systems can potentially be very influential. As an employer in a community, a contractor, a payer of living wages, a contributor to the built environment, and often much-needed shared and safe spaces that are missing in poor neighborhoods. What are the opportunities where you're located? Are you invested in your surrounding neighborhoods? This is part of the expanding discussion of equity that we're going to delve into on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you biweekly, and you can also find us later and conveniently, we hope, on iTunes and on IHI.org. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. The best strategies to create equity in health and healthcare combine attention to the care people have access to and receive within clinical settings, and combining that with the lives people lead and the opportunities they have outside those clinical settings. What we're going to learn from our panelists today is that there are multiple ways to make a difference by casting this wider net of ambitions and by making the health system itself a positive force for equity any which way you look. So introductions coming up, but first here's IHI's John Gothier, and he just has some quick reminders about how to make the most of your time with us today. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, Just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of the screen is our chat window. If you tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx at home to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable Internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. A simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks know at IHI Customer Service. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slide, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we could use your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out our very quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks so much, John. If you like to use Twitter, if you like doing that in addition to chatting, or you chat or you want to use Twitter after the show, thanks for using at the IHI in your tweets. That way we can bring those folks into the conversation, too. Now for some brief guest introductions, and always a reminder, there are longer, uh, there's more copy about each individual on our website and also on the slides that you'll see. Also a reminder, if you are joining by phone only today, you can get all the materials that that we're going to be referencing today, the slides, etc., at info at IHI.org. We have two people on the phone with us today from Methodist Le Bonheur Healthcare in Memphis, Tennessee. Donna Abney is the executive vice, excuse me, Sandra Bailey is the vice president for care transitions and the CEO of Methodist Extended Care Hospital. Donna Abney unfortunately can't join us, but we have Sandra Bailey and also Joy Sharp, who is the manager of community navigators at Methodist. For over 30 years, 38109 has been more than a zip code in the Memphis community. It's been Joy Sharp's home, and this zip code is central to what we're going to hear about from our panelists from Methodist today. So a huge welcome. Welcome to both of you to WIHI. You're both there, right? Sandra and Joy, just give a shout out. We are here. Yay. Okay, good. (laughs) Also on the phone from Detroit, before she heads out to New York City, I want to welcome Kimberly Dawn Wisdom to WIHI. She's the Senior Vice President of Community Health and Equity and Chief Wellness and Diversity Officer at Henry Ford Health System, an emergency medicine physician as well. I want to thank you, Kimberly Dawn, Dr. Wisdom, for being part of today's discussion. 
Glad to be here. Fantastic. We've also got John Whittington on the line. He's a senior fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and IHI's lead faculty for the Triple AIM. Dr. Whittington brings more than 30 years of experience in medicine, population health, and patient safety. He's part of a core IHI team that works on research and development. Today's topic is a prime example. We're in the middle of this research and development, uh, looking at some new dimensions to equity. Thanks, John. Glad you're here. Thanks, Matt. And finally, Mara Lauterman, Laterman is here with me. I knew I would mess that up. Mara Laterman, I only work with Mara, is here with me in the studio. Mara is a senior research associate at IHI. She has a lot of projects in motion, including behavioral health integration and population health. Mara and John Whittington are often a team on major research dives and developing program programming. Mara, thanks so much for being part of this show. Thanks, Matt. All right, so Mara gets the first question, and off we go. As everyone knows who's familiar with WIHI, but for uh, those of you joining for the first time, we're going to spend up until around 2.30, 2.35 p.m. Eastern Time uh, hearing from our guests, and then we'll turn things over to your interests and comments and questions, which you can provide us with via a chat. So, Mara, the genesis for today's WIHI is work that's been going on at IHI to identify Identify solid strategies to reduce healthcare disparities, and interestingly, to widen the lens without losing the focus on multiple components of what creates equity. I think that's been very interesting. So, give us some context uh, for this research and today's discussion. Thanks, Mara. So there are there are a number of other initiatives at IHI that are working on health equity, including the 100 Million Healthier Lives Initiative, a Robert Wood Johnson-funded project called Spreading Community Accelerators Through Learning and Evaluation, or SCALE for short. We have the Better Health, Lower Cost Collaborative, which focuses on new care models for individuals with complex needs, and the Triple Aim in a Community Initiative, in which we're working deeply with several communities around the country, and also some internal initiatives within IHI to improve diversity for both staff and our faculty. But our focus today is on some work that John and I have been doing over the past nine months as part of our work on IHI's innovation team. We have been engaged in a research and development project to develop a framework for health systems to impact the multiple determinants of health on which they have a significant impact in order to decrease disparities and improve health equity. So our overarching goal is really to facilitate a movement of health systems that see health equity as a priority for their work. And we think that health equity is achieved when everybody has the opportunity to attain his or her full health potential. And we think that in order to do this, we need to make health equity a system property for healthcare. So discussing this topic, engaging health systems in improving health equity on this WIHI is a part of this research and discovery process that we've been working on. So throughout the call today, we really want to hear from you, those of you listening in, about how your health system has worked on some issues related to health equity in the community. We'd love your thoughts on the framework that John will discuss shortly that's come out of this work, but we really want your feedback as we continue this work and continue to refine and test this framework. So I want to just give you a little bit of background about some of the other work that we've been doing as a part of this innovation project. We've done a few things. First, we considered how we can do a better job of communicating what creates health, because Improving population health does not always mean better outcomes for all, and we really need to look at the distribution of outcomes in a population, because while we might be improving outcomes for a whole population overall, just looking at the mean, if we look at the distribution of those outcomes by different characteristics like race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, or gender, those outcomes could remain unchanged or they might have worsened. So if we don't get down to that subpopulation level, we might not actually see that not everybody is improving. And this is the case uh, for infant mortality in the U.S., and it's the case for a number of other disorders, cancer screening, you can kind of name it, and this might be the case. So we really need to do a better job of communicating what we need to do to improve both the mean and the distribution if we're actually going to improve population health. And this is going to involve impacting the multiple determinants of health in addition to health care, socioeconomic status, behaviors, the physical environment. Um, and so we have been working on a framework for how health systems can work on these multiple determinants. And that's what John is going to be uh, focusing on today, but to help organizations organize a portfolio of interventions that they might undertake to improve health equity. Um, we've worked on some outlier analysis, so we've looked at state mortality data to identify states that have made real improvements in both the mean and the distribution and their mortality. Um, so comparing all-cause mortality changes in uh, the overall population and the disparities between blacks and whites. And we've been continuing that analysis and hope to have more report on that in the future. 
And then finally, we are working on identifying a summary measure of disparity that will include some core features like socioeconomic status, race and ethnicity, gender and geography, because communities need to be able to measure the success of their efforts. And so as you can see, there are a lot of things happening in the space for us right now. We'll focus this WIHI on this framework and then on the wonderful examples of how health systems such as Henry Ford and Methodist Laboner have actually done this work. So just a reminder that we'd like to hear from you during this, um, your feedback on the framework and what work you have done in this area so we can continue to learn from you. Thank you so much, Mara. All right, turning to John. Um, so you're going to help us uh, understand how you can possibly lend meaning to a focus on socioeconomic status and the physical environment. And the way I might ask is, is what does the health system need to know about itself and its own practices in order to get on a better path around equity? Thanks, John. Thanks, Madge. A um, couple quick comments I'd make. First, I want people to recognize that the work we're talking about today is really just a continuation of the triple aim in that how do you improve the health of the population, the experience, and the cost. But we're really focusing harder on thinking about those folks who are at the margin, uh, those folks who are um, facing more disparity, those folks who have been discriminated against. How can we actually improve the health of the entire population? So that's, that's that. And then the other context I want to make uh, clearly is the fact that um, what we're focusing on here is what can a health system do or a health organization do? Uh, what does it have the levers to work on uh, immediately? Or what's it, its, its wheelhouse? So with that in mind, basically we have a simple framework that's really the framework of the multiple determinants of health, which would be socioeconomic status, physical environment, behaviors, and, and uh, health care. So, but let me focus here. So when I ha talk about socioeconomic status, and you'd say, well, that's not the work of a health system. Well, sure it is. Ten percent of the employees in the United States are based in the health system. Health care is a huge part of the GDP. Um, and so we impact both through recruit recruitment, retention, the training. The question I like to ask people is, how are you helping your housekeeper be the next CEO of your organization? What are you actually doing to actually help the rank-and-file workers? Uh, in addition to that, um, where, are you, where are you building your buildings? Are you building in leafy uh, suburbs? Are we building in deprived areas? Where are, you, where are you doing it? And what kind of suppliers are you using? Have you used minority suppliers, women suppliers, etc.? So you can see that there's a lot of money that healthcare influences directly that could impact the socioeconomic status. Another aspect is the physical environment. What does your campus look like? Do you have walking trails? Are you doing things in such a way that are positive for the neighborhoods that you live in? Um, uh, are you making investments in the community around you, right around you, that can actually improve that physical environment? Um, so you could start to see, and there's great examples. Um, another aspect that I want to talk about is um, the aspect of how does healthcare influence behaviors? And probably the first place we have to look is our own house, i.e., you know, I'm a family doctor, so how am I doing on behavior, and how are the other employees doing on behavior, and how are the rank-and-file people doing on behavior in within the walls of health system? But then, you know, there are other aspects you can work on, uh, neighborhood ambassadors, neighborhood campaigns, other healthcare activities. Now, I purposely put all three of these things first because most of us, when we think about health equity, we actually mostly think of, from healthcare perspective, we think about healthcare equity. And, of course, if you said to yourself, well, what's the highest priority for a health system? I'd say, okay, it is healthcare equity. But I'm trying, we're trying to influence you to think about the multiple determinants that you can directly influence. And, of course, in healthcare equity, we think, there's some, we think there's some great opportunities. How would you make health equity a systems property? How would you actually start with that in the first place? How would you build a building with the idea that I'm going to make health equity a systems property? I want people to be available to it. Or, you know, I think a lot of times in quality improvement, not purposely, but we've actually created a greater disparity. We'll work on the, say, 80% that we can easily reach, and maybe we'll get an indicator up to a 95%. But we know that 5% of the population spends 50% of the money. And so often, without our intentionally doing it, we're actually focusing on, we're not focusing on the right group as we actually do our quality improvement or uh, health care design. And I think the opposite of that is actually, and, and, and don't take this negatively, folks, but we need to work on racism, institutional systemic racism, um, inadvertent racism, ways that we actually design things that actually, again, make the disparity worse. But, you know, the other things you have to do is you have to build trust as you build your access, and then we need co-design and co-production. 
you're going to hear some great illustrations of all of this uh, in a few minutes. And part of the problem on a show like this is both of our presenters, the future presenters here, could have each talked for an hour about fantastic work that they're doing in all of these areas. I think what I should do, uh, and then we actually have some practical steps, but I'm not going to belabor those today. Basically, the practical steps are taking this framework that I just described and then saying, how would I go after uh, the data I have to understand the disparities I have? What would I do to create structures within my organization to actually move this forward? And then how would I create a portfolio of activity to move this forward? Um, probably a thing I'd probably like to leave with you now, as, as, as emphasizing as Mara did, is to say we're, this is a participant uh, show, and what we want you to do is, as you have a chance, chat in today um, things that you are doing. Think about the structure that we described to you today and how you might actually begin to work on this. And then lastly, you know, this is an ongoing piece of R&D work, and so what we'd like the piece that we're focusing on right now in this cycle of activity is systemic, is working on systemic racism and how to make health equity a systems property. So we're always open to participants who would like to work closer with us. With that, back to you, Matt. All right. Thanks, John. And you can see everyone is doing their job of trying to pack a lot into our format here. So uh, John does have some. We'll, we'll, you'll get these slides. You can get them now, actually, at the link. They'll be posted tomorrow. And we can maybe refer back to some of these action steps, John, uh, during the Q&A and also kind of your request about how folks can take part uh, and offer you some ideas uh, as you and Mara continue with your research. So thank you so much. Uh, John. All right, I'm going to turn now to Dr. Kimberly Dawn Wisdom. So, Kimberly Dawn, Henry Ford Health System is definitely an example, as John was saying, of a system operating on all cylinders when it comes to improving uh, health and healthcare and opportunities for a diverse patient population and communities of color in the Detroit area. And I'm wondering if you set on this path systematically in some of the ways that John is almost suggesting that folks might get on this path. Or did you come about this work uh, in, in, in a different way? And as you're, you're all going to see, there's quite a lot of, of work that's going on uh, at uh, Henry Ford. So, uh, Kimberly, over to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, to answer that first question, I would say, indeed, both we have been systematic and strategic, but also opportunistic. Um, to ensure that we take advantage of opportunities as they present themselves. So I would say it's a, it's a both and. And at Henry Ford Health System, um, we have been on the equity journey for many decades and we've made great strides. However, we do realize that there are still opportunities to continue to improve and that's why we're delighted to share where we are on our journey and, um, as well as learn from others. I just have to say that Nancy Schlichting, our, our CEO and, our, and Wright Lasseter, the third, our president, you know, they have, Nancy especially, because she's um, been part of the system for over 10 years, has played a key role in driving our efforts as an anchor organization. So I just at the top need to mention that without that kind of um, commitment as a CEO, um, and, and you'll learn more as I share what we're doing, it, it takes that level of commitment at, um, to ensure that these equity efforts can uh, continue on. So I'm going to share a bit about um, multiple determinants of health and the nice framework that's been outlined. And I'll give examples of the socioeconomic status piece, the physical environment, as well as uh, behavior and health care. So to start off, um, Henry Ford uh, Health System has um, uh, been involved in several initiatives, and I just want to uh, say that, uh, you know, even in, from uh, broadly, um, some of these uh, efforts, we know they serve the community, we know they're, uh, they're beneficial in that respect, but also they serve our self-interest, too, in terms of wanting individuals to live in Midtown near the health system and also um, to um, train young uh, professionals. So there is a, a self-interest aspect of this as well. So I want to talk about two very quickly. One is an initiative that we call Live Midtown. And Henry Ford Health System has teamed up with um, Midtown Detroit, Wayne State University, and the T Detroit Medical Center to offer financial incentives to its employees who want to live in uh, Midtown. Uh, it will help revitalize the Midtown area, and, of course, local merchants, restaurants, entertainment venues will, will benefit from um, additional residents. We have actually offered um, eligible employees receive $20,000 
toward the purchase of a primary residence. It's a four-year forgivable loan. So if you stay in that residence for four years, that loan is entirely forgiven. And up to $2,500 for employees who rent a home or an apartment. So we've had over well over 100 employees that have taken advantage of this. Another effort is called our Henry Ford Early College, where we're integrating uh, the um, a high school curriculum with uh, college courses. And students start at grade 9. They're um, enrolled for, for five years to grade 13. And they conclude that experience, that five-year experience, with a high school diploma, an associate's degree, and also a health profession certificate. certificate. And this is no cost to the individuals. It's been a collaboration between Henry Ford Health System, Henry Ford Community College, and our Dearborn Public Schools. Currently, we have about 223 enrolled in all five years, and 60% of these students are economically disadvantaged. 60%, another 60%, are the first-generation college students. So, and the average daily, average daily attendance is 99%, and the average number of students that attain a college degree is 47%. So we're really thrilled in terms of um, addressing uh, um, how we're recruiting and retaining even young talent um, uh, in this very important work. Another effort related to supplier diversity, Henry Ford Health System Supplier Diversity Process encourages the w- working with suppliers that are minority or women-owned or have a supplier diversity program. So, for instance, we have our uh, de- have developed a transparent sourcing policy that requires all bids that are $20,000 or greater, they must include at least one or more women and or minority firms in the bid process. Uh, where they are available. So supply chains, supplier diversity team provides supplier base, um, suppliers based on the customer's pre-identified needs. And our requests for proposals include preference points for organizations that, for one, are certified women or minority-owned firms, have a supplier diversity process in place demonstrated by the percentage of spend with women and minority-owned firms, and also commit to supporting our supplier diversity process. So I'm going to move along here quickly in the interest of time because I've got far more information to share than time will permit. All right. Well, I so will, another. Yeah, keep going. Well, it's okay. We'll we'll get through it. Thank you very much. Okay. Right. Okay. With the next uh, one up, I just wanted you mentioned that uh, you've got something. Kirko Mannix is is that a, a good example? We'll put that one up it's next, a John. Yeah. Great example for related to our um, supplier diversity efforts, and Henry Ford Health Systems. Are, you know, our supplier diversity team has worked with a construction company to ensure that local women and minority-owned businesses contracting with Cardinal, the Cardinal Health Distribution Project. Now, that is a medical uh, distributor for m- several of the health systems in our region. This has resulted in a su- significant number of minority women and Detroit-based jobs for our local business partner community, so we're very excited about that. Next, I want to mention that um, just south of the our uh, main hospital in Detroit, there are, uh, have been 300 acres of undeveloped, um, very a uh, blighted area uh, where the, the, the um, ground needed, needs uh, significant remediation. So what we're planning on doing are uh, a few things. One, that 300-acre development site, we're going to be having um, a um, building a cancer center of excellence. We're going to have an acute rehabilitation hospital. But what's key to this discussion in terms of addressing our physical environment is that we are also um, going to be uh, creating hundreds of mixed-use housing units. So literally, entry-level employees within our health system can walk across the street and uh, engage in their um, uh, to, to get to work. So we're very much aligning our mission, which is transforming lives and lives and communities through health and wellness one person at a time with uh, our, our operations. Next, I want to talk a bit about uh, complete streets and what we've done in terms of the, the built or the physical environment around complete streets. And I'm going to move to my next slide there. So the um, in 2012, Henry Ford Health System sent a letter to the Detroit City Council supporting a complete streets ordinance. And it was very clear that rates of chronic disease in Detroit are much higher than the national average, and one reason is because of the lack of availability and access to safe, walkable, bikeable communities and green spaces. So we've been really thrilled to, to play a major role in terms of uh, addressing the physical environment related to complete streets. Next, I'm going to move to uh, efforts pertaining to our behavior 
and um, as well as healthcare. So I'm going to talk about those combined. And one of those efforts is uh, what we call Generation with Promise, which is one of our major um, areas of work related to youth leadership development, also promoting um, nutrition education, as well as physical activity. And while with internal to the health system, we have wellness ambassadors that are, are our employees, and we have many efforts that they are conducted in, we also have these a subset of these youth, and we're involved with hundreds of youth through throughout um, over 15 schools across the Detroit metropolitan area. We have identified leaders of leaders and youth, youth wellness ambassadors that help promote health and well-being outside of the four walls of our health system. And they're working on nutrition education, instant recess breaks, but also key policy initiatives. And I hope we have a little time to, to talk about that during our Q&A period. And lastly, I'm going to talk about another one of those combined um, so, uh, social determinants of health uh, related to behavioral and, um, uh, and health. And this relates to an initiative that um, addresses our uh, high infant mortality rate that we see in Detroit. Over 200 babies on average die before they see their first birthday. So we have um, collectively across four major health systems and academic um, uh, partners as well as uh, state and local health departments have developed a uh, collaboration where we have systematically um, addressed uh, reducing that infant mortality rate. We initially called our efforts so up the safety net for women and children, which resonated with our stakeholders, and then the, the women guided us to rebrand it, so we went through a major process to rebrand our efforts to be called WIN Network Detroit or Women Inspired Neighborhood Network Detroit. We have seen tremendous improvements in our um, infant mortality rates in that uh, um, uh, linking a community health worker with these uh, uh, vulnerable women, we have seen uh, of the women that we have interfaced with, uh, zero in zero preventable infant deaths among over 200 infants that have been born um, throughout um, the last several years. So we're very excited about uh, the results there, and we're looking to to even take that to scale. And lastly, I must say that we could not do this work without significant partnerships. We have uh, an unprecedented partnership with three of our. Um, Competing healthcare systems, Detroit Medical Center, uh, the um, St. John Providence, as well as Legacy Oakwood. And I just want to share, we can go into detail later, this document that actually was uh, published out of the University of Kentucky, Larry Pribble and his group, that really showed with, that we're one of a uh, group of success, one of a, one of ten successful partnerships across the country, and where we're building trust, we're co-designing efforts together, and we're um, really driving down significant poor outcomes in our communities. So this concludes the formal part of my remarks, and I look forward to entertaining questions. All right. Thank you so much, Kimberly Dawn. Quite a few programs there uh, impacting uh, in, in very important ways along this theme of equity for sure. So uh, a lot of food for thought there in terms of opportunities and initiatives. Um, okay, well, thank you. Now I want to uh, go from Detroit to Memphis, and I again want to welcome uh, Joy Sharp and Sandra Bailey from Methodist Le Bonheur Healthcare. Um, and I teased this in the beginning, talking about a particular zip code. Uh, so I'm going to just let the two of you take it from there, and uh, we will get to uh, our chat and questions and comments from all of you in, in about five minutes. But welcome, Joy and Sandra. Oops, got to get somebody off mute there. I don't know who that is, Sandra. Sorry about that. We had you on mute. Uh, Sandra and Joy, you there? We are here. Thank All you right. for having us today. Okay, fantastic. Our work um, begins in a, a zip code called 8109. This is the biggest zip code um, uh, mass and population-wise for Memphis and Shelby County. Conversations were basically from the hospital standpoint and the clergy because we had an existing network of, of churches that worked in partnership with us here at Methodist, and we call it the Congregational Health Network. And we listened to the pastors of this area, and they told us that it was really um, desperately in despair. Uh, we then took the hospital data and we were able to validate what they were saying by looking at 
uh, charity care dollars that the hospital was spending in this zip code. So we started doing asset mapping and some um, root cause analysis, and we came up with the help of the pastors of putting pop-up wellness events uh, in the community to do baseline screenings to provide that that area of 38109 with everything they needed as far as health and wellness. Um, we started that in March of 2013. We've had about 15 events, and, um, and it's a steady flow of people. For people, um, the difference between it being called a health fair and a wellness event is they're there to find out what they need. They're making appointments on site. We've had a medical director there to assist us. But basically, it's all about what they say they need instead of us making a decision as a big system of what we We basically try to listen to the population and tailor each event what the needs are. For example, <clears throat> excuse me, this fall we may do flu shots. And then later we have the dental team come from the College of Dentistry here at University of Tennessee in Memphis, and they'll come and do dental screenings. We have Southern College of Optometry come in and do eye and vision screens. And they participate with the Lions Club in getting glasses for the, the patients that come to the pop-up wellness clinics. Taylor needs uh, activities needs of the population. The other activity that we've started is we've got a navigation, health navigation. And Joy was our first navigator, and now she's managing seven navigators, and we're about to get more. The object of the navigation is to build trust. We have a flag with our EMR that whenever a patient from the zip code hits our emergency department, and navigator gets a notice that that person has hit the emergency department. And then she will go to the emergency department and meet that patient, find out what's going on. How can I help you? What issues have caused you to come back into the emergency department? And how can we support you so that you don't have to come back again? Through that, we found out many, many things that Joy will talk about in just a few minutes. From a measure standpoint, looking at it for two perspectives. Number one, to get the right level of care at the right place at the right time also help individuals realize that they can get engaged in their own personal health, that there are things that you can do regardless of your economic situation that will allow you to live a healthier and happier life. Our measures in terms of access to the emergency department, our emergency department visits with the population that we're serving through our navigators first year has gone down by 40%. That's being repeated group of navigators. We're seeing a lot of success in getting people rerouted to PCPs and other community-based um, providers. Joy's now going to tell you what we've learned through our initiative. Thanks. We, we, we took a lot of learnings. We've learned that, um, once again, the secret sauce is asking the community what they need. Uh, we learned that this type of work is very uh, taxing, but it's a lot of relational things. Uh, take the first patient we got, 18 years old, um, gastroparesis patient, at 56 ED and inpatient stays within 18 months. So after working with her, she was able to give us her goals, and we met her goals and underlined them with health goals. And now she has, a, what is it, a year and eight months later, she has a job. I mean, she's come off a disability. She is living alone. She's making her own follow-up appointments. She's attending them. Um, so she really became the quarterback in her care. So we, we learned that uh, this can be replicated because that was the first thing. How do we measure? How do we do apples for apples? So as Sandra said, we started with a second cohort in June, and their success rate is on target with the, the first cohort of, of, of patients. Um, we were um, asked by a health center here, uh, FQHC, to partner with them to put navigators in our hospitals to receive those flags, those are kind of like ticklers in your email, um, to route their patients back to primary care within one to three days. And so this is a, a, a learning of a health system and a safety net or FQHC working together to uh, just basically take care of a community. Okay. Thank you. 
Okay, so does that, uh, at least for, for the moment, those are the remarks you prepared for now. Is that right, Joy? That is correct. Fantastic. Okay. So we have this, thank you, Joy and Sandra uh, from Methodist Le Bonaire, and we have sort of an interesting example of, you know, the, the framework that Mara and John were laying out there in terms of the combined force uh, in, in the community on multiple levels in terms of uh, as an employer, as someone, as an institution that can uh, take advantage of ways to uh, improve people's livelihoods as well as health behaviors and uh, identifying, I liked what you said right from the start, this asset mapping of really understanding um, actually uh, who's who uh, in the community and what kinds of things exist and then pop up uh, wellness here. John uh, Whittington, before we go to chat, which we're going to do really right now, I wonder if you want to repeat your request that you and Mara made. Maybe we can throw that slide back up there, uh, John Gothier. And if there's anything you want to say about the combined sort of remarks we got from Kimberly Dawn and our team at Le Bonaire. Well, first of all, I think it's a real privilege to hear their work. And, and again, the challenge of a program like this is that we can only give them a little uh, taste of it. I'm going to actually put in the chat a nice publication that uh, came out of Methodist uh, in regards to some of the works of scientific publication, so for your reading. Um, and what I'd say from today is what we wanted to do is expose you to a larger framework that health systems can impact. We're not asking health systems to conquer the world here. We're just saying there's a lot more opportunity that health systems could do. And if we wanted to make health equity a real priority, you've seen examples of it today. And, again, they could have gone through, they had to just cut everything short in terms of the lots of examples they could have given you today, but some of them are really outstanding. So, again, we'd like to hear from you. If you have examples of where you've been working on SES or behaviors or the physical environment or healthcare equity, we want to find you. Um, I think most organizations are actually kind of early in the game here. And so I think there's opportunities for us all to learn together. We want organizations to work on the action steps. They didn't go through them per se, but you could look at them online. Again, basically they say, look at your data, find your disparities, develop an organizational structure to actually make a difference, and start developing a portfolio. And then lastly, we're still wanting organizations who want to participate with us. And I tried to chat in and tell people a little bit more about what did I mean by making health equity assistance property. But again, it would be to say you make health equity a strategic priority, you start with health equity in, in all of your planning, and then you figure out ways that you can actually deliver on this promise on a consistent basis, and you measure it all the time. The good news is because of a variety of changes in the United States, we all have a lot of race, ethnicity, and language data we're sitting on today. Very few of us have really maximized it, but there's a lot we can learn in our own data, and I'll stop there, Matt. Okay, thank you very much, John. All right, John Gothier, I, I assume everybody knows what they're doing with chat, but never hurts to remind everybody. Yeah, of course. By all means, uh, go to the chat and send to all participants when adding your questions and comments. That's all participants. Make sure that you choose that in the send to bar. All right. Thank you so much. I can already tell by the comments and commentary that this is a rich and important conversation uh, for many of you and all of you who have joined today. So thank you. Don't forget, you'll get to download this chat and we'll post it to the website uh, so you have it for your reference and uh, further action. Uh, I want to also just give a shout out to uh, Rick Foster and the South Carolina Hospital Association and all the work that's going on there in South Carolina. Thanks, Rick, for chatting that in. Um, there was a question, and maybe I'll go back to you, uh, Kimberly Don, Dr. Wisdom, uh, about, and, and this kind of tease off of what Joy and Sandra were saying about listening to the community and what's on their minds. I'm curious, uh, somebody has asked a question about how much community-based organizations are involved in your strategy and some of the things that you're doing. And maybe I'll start that off uh, with you, Kimberly Dawn, in, in Detroit, in terms of what you've heard from community groups that has helped shape your strategy. Thanks. Right. Well, we have, um, and I appreciate this question, because we have uh, developed quite a few community-based uh, partnerships, relationships, um, and we're actually in the process of categorizing those now. Um, and they're they're pretty deep, rich relationships, and when I say deep and rich, I mean they're not uh, relationships on paper. They're, we're working with them in one form or fashion. We're attending their events. They're attending our events, 
and also I'm keynoting at their events for them. So the partnership is truly, um, and of course there are some partnerships that are that are funding partnerships. But we listen very, very closely to our partners, and they have guided us in um, amazing ways. Um, I can give multiple examples. For one, changing the name from Swap the Safety Net for Women and Children to the Wind Network Detroit was guided by our community and our community partners. So um, that, because they said that name doesn't resonate with us at all, Swap the Safety Net, what are you sewing up? Um, are you sewing up a part of our bodies? Is this a quilting club? Are, and are we falling through the cracks? And as we did focus groups with them, we realized that, that they said, we're winners, we're resilient, we're uh, resourceful. Why are you know you depicting us in a way that doesn't represent how we think of ourselves? So it's getting to that deficit approach versus an asset pro- approach. And so we rely on them very, very heavily in... Um, you know, actually, even co-designing, co-branding, and uh, they will, will continue to be in, you know involved. But we have um, over a hundred partners, and actually, I think that's a bit of an underestimation because we're actually now pulling together a, a, a deliberate list and actually going to evaluate the uh, richness of our partnership uh, partnerships eventually. But um, hope that gets to your question initially. Absolutely, thanks. Um, Okay, there's a question. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, there's a question uh, back to you folks at Methodist referring to uh, the issue of navigators. Uh, somebody is asking whether or not uh, the race or ethnicity of the individual should be or ideally should be concordant uh, with the patients and uh, community that's being served there. And somebody has waited and said they believe that is the case or should be the case. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Thanks. Yes, found that if the navigator can relate to the patients in each demographic, both personally and ethnically, that it really makes a huge difference. It, it helps with the trust component. Trust becomes a little more natural. Not to say that someone from a, a different nationality or race can not be a navigator. Of course they can. But the initial contact often comes when someone looks like me and talks like me and knows how to relate to me where I'm at. Mm-hmm. Thank hey, you. You mind if I chime in there, Kimberly Dawn, here just quickly because we have navigators or community health workers. What we've done is we have found individuals that are from the neighborhoods that we're trying to reach. So I think that has been a key factor for us, too, is that we try as much as possible to find individuals from the, we worked in three key neighborhoods, underserved neighborhoods, just like Methodist Labana and their zip code, but we worked very hard to find individuals that were from those neighborhoods, and that was also what we found was a key element. Thank you very much. I'd like to, uh, thanks, uh, Dr. Wisdom. I'd like to ask um, Joy and Sandra, um, thinking about as you're engaging with the community more with the pop-up clinics and really digging in, how does the system Methodist Le Bonheur relate to some of the other kinds of things that are surrounding uh, the circumstances for uh, uh, folks in terms of socioeconomic issues? Um, we started this program talking a little bit about the health system as an employer's uh, supplier, who's being hired, et cetera. Um, I think the you know hiring navigators from the community is probably a strong case in point about uh, ways that a system is giving back also to the community in terms of jobs. But I wonder, as you encounter the full flavor of what folks are dealing with, uh, what are you learning about that and what the health system is able to do? Uh, Sandra or Joy? Hi, this is Joy. Um, We, um, once again, we don't do anything without consulting the community. And so we found that a couple of things were the, the, in their presence, the high speed. And one of them was jobs. So here we have a, a win as well, but it's the Workforce Investment Network. So we and we are in the process of training congregations to be win readiness sites so that they can provide the, the social things surrounding what a person would need to go into the win center to be employable. Also, um, in talking about supply, we held a, um, a health fair in September 
that was all people that did any type of construction, landscaping, cleaning, anything for the hospital. We asked them to bring in their HR teams. Let's take it to the community. We were able to um, see about 150 individuals walk in that day. About 50 of them got interviews, and 23 of them were hired. Um, so it becomes a way bit more than health. We believe that um, putting people to work still improve their health outcomes. At least it will improve their access mm -hmm. because they now can either get in the marketplace or be able to, um, you know, get some insurance on their job. Yeah, that's great. Those are really strong examples. John Whittington, I don't want to leave you out if you just chime in. John is also on the chat here. So uh, pipe up uh, whatever you feel like it. Um, there is a question for you, Kimberly Dawn. Somebody is asking the question around the housing you have invested in for employees, the uh, forgivable, the forgivable loans. Um, she's, mm -hmm. This person is asking, was that a, pro the, a process that the community bought into? And this person goes on to say, I'm thinking about the implications it may have for gentrification. I don't know what sorts of assumptions are there in terms of, uh, you know, who's buying in and shaping a neighborhood. But anything you can explain about that. Thanks. Right. Well, this was extended. This was an effort that was extended, um, unlike the, you know, the, the, the building of the uh, mixed income housing that's going to occur just south of our uh, main campus uh, in the upcoming years. This was designed for our um, employees and particularly for our employees that may not have um, been homeowners or uh, may have lived uh, quite a distance and had to catch two and three buses to get to work. So this was a way to uplift our employees um, in that respect to give them a, you know, a big boost because in the Detroit market especially, a $20,000 forgivable loan over four years is pretty significant. You can buy, you know, some, you know, with, with you know, of course, with a small mortgage, um, some really decent properties. So in part it was to um, really assist some of our more vulnerable uh, employees in terms of living uh, closer to uh, um, their employment, but also, as I mentioned at the top of my uh, remarks, was that this was also um, uh, benefited us as well because we want to see a more vibrant midtown area. So it was a win-win. It was a win for for us as a health system wanting to you know grow a more, more vibrant community around the health around one of our um, hospitals, and also to um, uplift our employees that may otherwise not have envisioned. Uh, being an owner of a home or renting, um, uh, you know, in the near future, so it kind of really uh, accelerated their their um, their success in achieving uh, that goal. Thank you very much. Very good, um, Mara. Why don't you address this next question? Somebody's asking. Uh, John's also Whittington weighing in. Is the community benefit provision of the Affordable Care Act influencing? how hospitals and health systems uh, engage with the communities, Mara? Or at least more recently, is there an uptick? Yeah, Yeah, I, I think I think it depends on the hospital. I think for some, the requirement that they complete a community health needs assessment every three years to maintain their not-for-profit status is giving them an opportunity to really think about how they interact with their community, how they can better engage with their community. I think that it kind of depends on the hospital and whether or not they're prioritizing issues such as equity, but I do think it, prevents a great, it presents a great opportunity opportunity for hospitals to kind of step back to bring in community stakeholders as they conduct their assessments to really use the community as they've done at Methodist, as they've done at Henry Ford, to identify the needs that they themselves prioritize and use that to help with the provision of their community benefit spending. So I definitely think that there is a bit of a learning curve there. Um, you know, most hospitals have just done kind of their first round, but I do think that there is a great opportunity and some have definitely taken uh, good advantage of it. Thanks a lot. John uh, Whittington, let me bring you in also. Also here, in terms, because this is something that you and Mara have also been uh, researching the community benefit. And as you hear and learn about, um, along with all of us and in your research about um, Henry Ford Health System and Methodist, um, how typical are are these uh, endeavors right now? Um, and are are these uh, folks <laughs> are folks hoping to learn from them uh, in in your travels, as we hope they are on today's WIHI? Um, I think overall, again, they didn't have a chance to give all that they're doing, but 
overall, from what I know of both institutions, um, they're further ahead of the curve than many, and I think there's a lot to learn. I had the privilege of being in um, Memphis recently, and they took me on a tour of the work that is going on in that zip code 38109. I think one of the things that I, well, a couple comments I'm going to make. One thing that I really liked about the work, and I think this is, I think we'll all fail when we work on things um, without some level of the community. So even though I emphasize what can the health system do, it still has to work with the community. But again, there's a lot it could start doing right now as it builds relationships with the community. I think one thing you heard from Joy, uh, and just is the whole idea of working with, co-creating, it's that reinforcement of that uh, with the community. And, when, and, and so when they put their community health workers out there, when Joy was out there, she was they've actually created, and there's writing about this one too, I didn't link it in there, they have a congregational health network that they actually work with. Think of it this way, it's a large resource that they have in their community, uh, and it's a faith-based resource. And it's a way for them to actually work with resources within the community to actually strengthen, help, and, and understand the needs, but not just understand the needs, but actually participate and work together. So I think that's good. And then, again, you've already heard plenty from Dr. Wisdom in terms of the multiple things that, uh, that they're working on, the strategy they're working on. But, you know, they have a long track record. They've been working on this for 20 years. My sense, and we've had lots of conversations across the United States, my sense this is actually early days for most organizations. For most of them, I'll honestly say it's not strategic for them, although as we start to actually manage populations, as we start to get paid for risk, we start to really understand um, how we're spending the money and that a lot of times the healthcare spend is really not a marker of healthcare need but of other needs. I think I want to just build on one other thing, Madge, and that's what Mara was saying about community health needs, the community health needs assessment and community benefit dollars. I think, I think even for organizations that aren't focused on health equity, the community health needs assessment is actually opening their eyes to the disparities within communities, the difference among communities, the variation among communities, whether it's at a concrete level of something like diabetic care or it's the higher level of life expectancy between the rich and the poor. I think, I think for health systems, uh, who've been in the healthcare business, I think they're actually seeing a little bit more. And again, I think it's a, it's a big learning curve there. And then lastly, I think, you know, the IRS is paying more and more attention to, uh, or has been paying attention to community benefits. They're going to continue to scrutinize community benefits. And I think we have an opportunity to coordinate our community benefits dollars more. Back to you, Madge. Okay, thanks, John. A question for both of you in Memphis, uh, the team in Memphis and also in Detroit. Somebody is asking whether you've done any cost-benefit analysis to the health system accruing back uh, with regard to a uh, number of the activities that have been mentioned. And, Joy and Sandra, I'll start with you two, and then uh, Kimberly Nahn. Thanks. Yes, we measure um, the health the impact to the health system. Now, right now, from a Methodist standpoint, most of these patients are um, on Medicare or Medicaid, TenCare in our case, and we would get paid for their visit. So the impact is not necessarily positive for the hospital because we're taking money out of the emergency department. I believe it's the right thing to do, get people engaged at healthcare at a level where they should be engaged, not going to the emergency department for their primary care. But we have seen a 56% decrease year over year in cost system for providing care for these patients. Thank you very much. Kimberly Dawn? Yes. In terms of Henry Ford, there, um, there's an initiative that I didn't have the chance to talk about related to our faith community nursing efforts. And related to that specifically, um, we have had a methodology where we've looked at cost savings and cost avoidance. So nurses, when they're going out in the community and addressing various issues, they are documenting what they're doing and looking at what costs have been avoided. But in terms of a cost-benefit analysis, that's an area that we are actually uh, have been in the process of talking with Altarum about because um, it, you know, you really need to have a person with a economics background that really understands how to collect the data so that the uh, the data can be analyzed in a way to truly understand um, um, you know, return on investment, cost-benefit. So 
we are, that's an area where we're moving into uh, very much. We've been responding to our CHNA and responding to what we know are the, um, the, the, the uh, um, adverse statistics that we see in our community, but to actually get to the place where we look at claims and, you know, we know we have frequent uh, overutilized of the emergency department and that sort of thing as well. So once we, you know, move into this other arena, it, it will be invaluable in terms of collecting data, but we have to collect a lot up front in order to analyze, um, you know, what the downstream um, benefit ultimately is. Thank you. I'm just going to keep you on the spot uh, for one more second just as we start to wrap up. Uh, there was a question actually early on in the program. Somebody was asking if you're a large employer or self-insured, um, whether or not you can essentially take uh, the lessons that of, of what uh, Henry Ford is doing and in some ways apply this model and thinking about equity uh, to, to a company uh, with respect. Now, that, of course, gets into a whole other area of what companies can do overall. But I'm curious whether Henry Ford's uh, efforts uh, as an employer and contractor and all the things that you're doing, uh, whether that has in any way uh, influenced uh, how any of uh, companies uh, have behaved uh, in your area. Well, I believe in some instances it has. We actually consider ourselves a a learning laboratory in many respects. So this is our centennial year, and uh, Henry Ford, our our founder. So we um, have what we've learned we we strive to share, and we've seen others change behavior. And and these are examples more around wellness and and equity in that respect. Um, but uh, there, there's no doubt we intentionally do things with our, with our system to improve our community and our surroundings, but also we want to, we, we try to package that and learn in a way that we can share it with others so that they can potentially replicate it. And that's even with the branding. I mean, we're hoping people will grab the Wind Network Chicago, Wind Network Memphis, Wind Network uh, Atlanta. So we, we, we think globally. We act locally, but we th- we're thinking globally. All right. Thank you so much. Um, John, quick quick uh, mention of our forum and what's going to go on with equity there. Thanks. That's right. In December, the uh, National Forum is happening. And if you enjoyed today's conversation on equity and you want to learn, learn a little bit more, we do have an equity track at this year's IHI National Forum. And it, it features about 16 different courses and sessions that you can be a part of uh, and meet uh, fellow like-minded folks who are working on these issues at home. Um, if you have more questions, email info at IHI.org or feel free to pop on to IHI.org slash forum where you can learn a lot more. All right. Thank you, John. All right. Quick run around the horn here. Joy and, and uh, Sandy, uh, you've, you've uh, shared so much with us already today. Any, any parting words? Uh, what, what kinds of things uh, uh, should we come back and talk to you about in six months uh, or, or further into the year? Thanks. Oh, thank you. We're now going to continue with our um, navigation, moving along the continuum of care and making sure that we can follow our patients if they go into skilled nursing or into community-based homes. Also, make sure we link them with other resources like the food bank and other community resources so that we maximize the impact that the whole community can have on the lives of the individuals of the community. All right. Thanks. Joy, any final thoughts from you today? She bombed it up. Okay. All right. Thank you, Joy uh, Sharp and Sandra Bailey, so much for taking part. Uh, Kimberly Dawn, uh, parting words from you. We're so glad. uh, And and then we'll let you get on that uh, flight to New York. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Great, great. In terms of population health, we are moving into um, the arena in terms of group visits. So that's going to be on the horizon for us um, as we move forward. So we'll have more to share in six months. All right. Thank you very much. John, final thoughts from you today. Um, Well, first of all, I want to thank everybody who joined us today. And then this is a priority for IHI. Lots of organizations, lots of health systems are working on it. We want to work together with you to accelerate the work on this. we got a million miles to go, but at least we're on the road. Thanks, Matt. All right. Thanks, John. And Mara, any final thoughts from you? And just to build on what John said, to thank all of you for your engagement. We will comb through the chat and uh, 
get in touch with some of you. I think that while this work is in its infancy for many, we're reaching the point where in the not so distant future, health equity will be considered a core part of the business of health systems. And so we're excited to uh, be working with you all along that journey. All right. Thanks, uh, Mara Laterman, John Whittington, Joy Sharp, Sandra Bailey, Kimberly Dawn Wisdom. Uh, in case you didn't notice, their email addresses are on their bio slides. So should you have some additional questions and want to do this networking that we think is so important, please do follow up. So thank you, our audience today, and thanks to our guests. Uh, just a few parting words from me. Uh, don't forget that you can download the chat uh, when you get off the program, as well as the slides and all the elements that we have. They'll be posted to the website by tomorrow morning. You can also find this program on iTunes, and if you like what you hear and are glad that there is a podcast that you can listen to again or share with somebody else, thanks for making a mention of that in the ratings or the survey that uh, pops up there on iTunes. That uh, will help uh, give the, the program some visibility. Next up on WIHI on November 12th, we're going to be talking about the enduring value of collaboratives. There's a new book that's coming out in November, and we're using that as a great excuse to look at 20 years of collaboratives and collective impact. We hope you'll join us for that program as well. Again, check out the archive page uh, as of tomorrow morning. Any questions at all, email info at IHI.org. I don't do this program alone, as you can tell from all the outstanding guests and you, our audience today, and there are other people here who make WIHI possible. They include John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Ruth James, Caroline Claxton, and Haley Ladd. And I want to give a big shout-out to Mike Bridden for his participation today as well. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, thanks for your engagement today. I'm Madge Kaplan. Have a good afternoon.